Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Paul had urged that the believers of Rome accept each other with kindness and understanding rather than with complaint and irritation. He called for church unity in all matters essential to faith in Christ, but in the non-essentials of following Jesus, he wanted there to be freedom for people to follow the Lord according to their own consciences. As long as what was at issue is, as he says, a disputable matter and not a matter of real sin, Paul wanted the believers of Rome to treat one another with grace. In the words of Jesus, we are to love one another just as the Lord loved us, for it is by our mutual love that all men will know that we are truly Christ's disciples. Believers don't relate to other people as the world does. The world follows Cain's example of denying any responsibility for those around them. Am I my brother's keeper? he demanded. Well, for the Christian, the answer is yes, in many ways you are. We have a responsibility for helping our brothers and sisters in the family of God, for not putting stumbling blocks in their way, and we are not to destroy the Lord's work in another's life for the sake of our own freedoms. In Romans chapter 15, Paul speaks to those who were more mature in their faith, stressing their responsibility to those who are new to following Christ. He says in verse 1, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Paul teaches that mature believers have a responsibility to their weaker brothers and sisters to see them succeed and mature as disciples of Christ. We should care more for their growth into Christ-likeness than we do for insisting on our own freedoms and comfort zones. In this, we follow Christ's example who made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant for the betterment of others. Make no mistake, though, Christ was not a people pleaser. He lived to please his Father in heaven, and he willingly bore the hatred of God's enemies while on earth. He laid aside everything that rightfully belonged to him as God's Son in order to save us. Paul says that mature believers are to follow Christ's example by putting aside their own desires for the good of others, and he points us to scripture as our help in doing this. In verse 4, he states, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Christian fellowship is to be based on the written word of God, for it 
not only gives us a written account of God's dealing with mankind in the past for us to learn from, but the scriptures also give us encouragement and endurance to face our own difficulties in life. They bring us to hope, not in human goodness or achievement, but rather in God's faithfulness. For hope in God's faithfulness is never misplaced. Paul then raises his prayer for them to God in verse 5. He says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is the one from whom we draw endurance and encouragement, and he's the one who unites us as we follow Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit, who is at work in and through his church. It is the Holy Spirit who's really able to bring us to total harmony with one another so that we can bring glory to God as if it were with one heart and mouth. With that harmony in mind, Paul urged his listeners to accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, so that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy." Jesus Christ has accepted each one of us with all of our imperfections, and so we are to accept one another in God's family too. Paul says that Christ's work was for Jew and Gentile alike. He was born of Jewish heritage, yet this was so that God's promises to the families of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would come to pass, and that salvation would come for the Jews first and then for the Gentiles. Paul then draws from the Old Testament scriptures to remind his readers that this was God's eternal plan. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the hymns to your name. Again, it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to root, to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. Paul quotes from the major sections of the Old Testament. He pulls from the law in Deuteronomy 32.43, from the Psalms, which was Israel's prayer book in Psalms 18 verse 50, and Psalm 117 verse 1, and finally from the prophets in Isaiah 11 verse 10, to remind his readers that everything he's telling them is rooted in God's word. It isn't just just Paul speaking. We who believe in Christ are united to him and to each other, irrespective of our different backgrounds. Because of him, we have the incredible blessings of hope, joy and peace. Paul closes this section with his heartfelt prayer for the church in Rome, saying in verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit.
No matter what happens in the world, the Christian is not to despair. In fact, there are no hopeless situations in life, only perhaps men and women who've grown hopeless about them. You know, as I prepared for this lesson, I read of a time when things were going very badly for Britain during World War II. France had fallen to the Germans and Britain was at that moment all alone in her resistance to Hitler's advance. The British cabinet met and as the Prime Minister Winston Churchill outlined their dire situation, the people's heads hung in despair and it seemed as if all hope was gone from their faces. But Churchill looked around the room and said, gentlemen, I find this rather inspiring. He, you see, had not given up hope, even in those dark circumstances. He never gave up looking for victory against all of the odds, and the strength of his hope carried an entire nation through even darker days to come. As Christians, even the darkest clouds cannot cast a shadow over the hope that we have, a hope that is secure, reserved in heaven for us who believe. Our victory is assured, for we serve the King of kings and Lord of lords, the living God, the King of the universe. And as we look to him in every situation, we can find joy despite the circumstances and a peace that passes all human understanding. When these things begin to overflow in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, despite the reality of our difficult situation, we inspire those around us as well. We can bring hope to those who have none, the hope, joy and peace of Christ himself. Paul knew that like him, those in Rome faced an uncertain future, but he was sure that their hope in God was not misplaced. Today, though we may not know what will happen from one moment to the next, we too can rest assured that our hope in God is never misplaced, and as we place our trust in Him, we experience a joy and peace that cannot be easily explained. We can do all things through Christ who gives us strength by the power of the Holy Spirit. As mentioned at the beginning of the study, Paul had written this letter to help the believers in Rome with some of their cross-cultural difficulties. He understood the tensions that could arise between Jewish and Gentile Christ followers. But one of Paul's other main purposes in writing this letter was to prepare them for his visit and also to sow a seed in their hearts that they should help him on his own onward mission of taking the gospel to Spain. He begins tactfully in verse 14 saying, I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge and competent to instruct one another. I have written to you quite boldly on some points as if to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might 
might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. If you think about it, Paul has had quite a lot to say to the believers in Rome about their position in Christ and also about their need for unity. And yet, as he nears the end of his letter, he doesn't continue to lecture them. Rather, he tells them that he has only been reminding them of what they already knew. He encouraged them for all the good he saw in them and said that he knew that they were even in a position to teach others. He admits that he has been quite direct in the way that he has spoken to them, but he explains that he did so because of God's call on his life. Paul wanted to make sure that they understood that being a minister of Christ Jesus didn't mean that he was better than them, for his call had been given to him as a result of God's grace. But they also had to realize that that call had come with certain responsibilities. Paul saw himself as a tool in God's hand. He was not only to bring people everywhere to faith in Christ through the preaching of the gospel, but his gifting was also to be used to inspire them to become all that Christ knew that they could be. Paul had no pride in his position. Instead, he declares in verse 17, Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Spirit. So, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand." Paul's greatest delight was that he was able to serve the Lord. He knew that he had been given the privilege of joining Christ in the work that only Jesus could really do. For it was Christ who had led the Gentiles to obey God through Paul's preaching. Also, the powerful signs and miracles that followed Paul were done through the power of the Holy Spirit alone. Paul's ministry had stretched from Jerusalem right across the Roman Empire into what is now Europe. It had always been his ambition to preach in new areas, to be the first to bring the good news of salvation in Christ, and he'd been successful, as those who knew nothing of God had heard and understood the message of Jesus. But Paul took no glory in that for himself, for he knew well that everything that had been accomplished had been because of Christ's power at work in him and through him. Paul reveals that his desire to always go to the remote, unreached places, the places where Christ had never been preached, had been the thing that had actually kept him from visiting them in Rome before. 
But Paul knew somehow that his circumstances were now about to change, and he declares in verse 23, But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through, and to have you assist me on my journey there, after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints, the Lord's people there, for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this fruit, this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. Paul believed that the Lord was moving him on from his current area of ministry, and so he shared his immediate and future plans with the church in Rome. Ultimately, he said he wanted to travel to Spain, which was at the western edge of the Roman Empire. We understand from this that Paul wanted to take the message of Jesus Christ to the very edges of the known civilized world. Additionally, the people of Spain happened to be very influential in the Roman Empire at this time, and so perhaps Paul was determined to reach them because of the way that they might be able to reach and influence others. Whatever the case, Paul sensed God's call to be strategic in his work of spreading the gospel. The added benefit of traveling to Spain was that it would give him the opportunity to stop in Rome on his way, thus allowing him to fulfill his long-held desire to visit the believers in Rome. However, before he could set out on that missionary journey, Paul had another urgent assignment that he was to undertake. The newly planted churches in Macedonia and Achaia had taken up an offering for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem, and Paul was to be the one to take it there. After Christ's resurrection, the church in Jerusalem had grown dramatically, and many missionaries had been sent out from there to carry the gospel to other cities. However, being a follower of Christ in Jerusalem was certainly not easy. Much of that city's life focused on the temple, and it seems that many of the Christians there had lost their jobs upon declaring their newfound faith in Jesus leaving them in urgent need of assistance. Paul knew that helping those in Jerusalem was not only the compassionate thing to do, it was vital for other reasons as well. Paul believed that the churches scattered across the empire owed a debt of gratitude to the believers in Jerusalem, for if it hadn't been for the tireless work of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, sending messengers of the gospel out far and wide, many Gentiles who had come 
to faith would have never been able to hear the message of Christ. Sharing their material blessings with those believers in Jerusalem then was the least that they could do. But gratitude wasn't the only consideration. Paul knew that the provision of one Christian church for another would demonstrate to the world the unity within Christianity as a whole. It was a wonderful way of showing to others the love that they had for one another, the love that Jesus said would identify his disciples. Once he had successfully delivered this gift to the church in Jerusalem, Paul would visit the believers in Rome while on his way to Spain. It seems that Paul was really excited at the thought of finally meeting them with the full measure of Christ's blessing. Interestingly, as far as we know, Paul never made it to Spain. For once he arrived in Jerusalem with the gift, he was arrested, leading to many years of imprisonment before his eventual death. It seems as if Paul had a suspicion of the risks involved in traveling to Jerusalem. He knew that many of the Jewish religious leaders in that city were deeply opposed to him and his preaching about Christ. And so he declares in verse 30, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. From this text, we understand that Paul knew that there was a spiritual battle going on. He was aware that danger awaited him in Judea, and yet he was unwilling to turn away from the task that God had so evidently entrusted to him. He asked those in Rome to join him in his struggle by praying for him, and you and I should learn from his example. God doesn't always call believers to undertake the kind of journey that was before Paul, but we can all still be part of the mission. We can pray. Paul asked not only for protection from those who did not believe in Christ in Judea, he also asked that his service would be well received by his fellow Christians in Jerusalem. Paul was truly a remarkable man who encountered much opposition as he followed the Lord, and not just from unbelievers. On one hand, if you remember, Paul had been a rising star in the strict religious group known as the Pharisees, and the Jewish religious leaders of Jerusalem had actually employed Paul to stamp out Christianity. Well, imagine their horror and embarrassment when their chief persecutor ended up becoming a Christian himself. Those religious leaders still awaited Paul in Jerusalem, but they were were not the only ones who were opposed to him there. The Christian leadership in Jerusalem supported Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, and they had agreed that he should continue his work among them. But his outreach to foreigners was not always popular with those Christians who had come out of a Jewish background. 
Some of the Christians in the church at Jerusalem suspected that Paul's focus on the Gentiles was somehow heretical. He knew that he was not assured of a kindly welcome from all of them either, and that some might even suspect his motives in bringing such a gift to Jerusalem from the Gentile churches. Whatever the case, Paul knew that he would need the prayers of others in order to have a safe and successful trip into Judea, which he hoped would result in much praise and rejoicing once he was eventually with them in Rome. Whatever the outcome, Paul asked that God, who is the God of peace, would be with them. We do know from the book of Acts in chapter 21 how things turned out for Paul. As he travelled towards Jerusalem, Paul was repeatedly warned of the danger that awaited him there. For example, as the ship he was sailing on unloaded its cargo at the port of Tyre, Paul visited some believers in that city, and a Christian by the name of Agabus, who had the gift of prophecy, came and took Paul's belt, and tying it around his own hands and feet, warned, in this this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Immediately upon hearing that prophecy, several of the believers who were present pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem, but we're told, Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When they couldn't persuade him otherwise, we're told that they gave up, and finally, saying the Lord's will be done, they escorted him and his companions back to their ship. Well, as prophesied, once Paul arrived in Jerusalem, he was quickly arrested by the Jewish religious leaders who accused him of teaching everyone everywhere to be against the Jewish people and their law and to be against their temple. This was in no way true, but they managed to cause such an uproar in the city, Paul was eventually taken into custody by the Romans. While in their custody in Jerusalem, the Lord appeared to Paul in a dream, telling him to take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. It seemed as if Paul's wish to visit Rome was about to be granted after all. Paul spent more than two years in prison at the governor's fortress in Caesarea on the Judean coast until they finally transferred him by way of a disastrous sea journey to another prison in Rome. It touches my heart that Paul's dream of visiting Rome was granted, though perhaps in a most unusual way. It is thought that some of those in the Roman church would have been able to visit him in prison, but it seems unlikely that he ever reached Spain. Life certainly turned out differently to what Paul would have wanted, but through it all, he was fully committed to the Lord, being ready not only to be bound, but also to die for the name of the Lord Jesus.
Paul refused to hold on to his hopes and dreams, his own plans for the future, over and above those that God had for his life. He was determined to run the race that God had laid out for him, no matter where that led. However, he knew his need for the prayer support of others, and he knew that it is only by the supernatural peace of God, the peace that passes all understanding, that we can persevere under great trial. You and I would do well to learn from his example, for it is those who know their God and who are focused on his plan for their lives that can meet all of life's dangers unafraid. May God bless you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word to our hearts today. Lord, help us to know you better. Help us to be focused on your plan for our lives. Lord, help us to face the future unafraid. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.